I invite you to join me in Ephesians 2, if you're not there already. Ephesians 2, we'll be looking specifically at verses 14 to 18 this evening. Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. Let us open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we gather here this evening, our hearts are proclaiming hallelujah. What a Savior. Even as we look forward to that day when anew this song we will sing hallelujah. What a Savior. Heavenly Father, we long for that day, even as we live here. So help us to live faithfully, even as our eyes are on eternity. Heavenly Father, even as we gather here as your church this evening, we pray that you would guide our hearts and our minds, that you would cause distractions to fade away as we turn our attention now to the word of God. Heavenly Father, I especially know in this moment how unworthy I feel to stand here and to proclaim the word of God. I am but dust, but I pray that you would, through me, proclaim the glories of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, this evening, that you may be honored in all that is said and done. May your spirit take this word and work in each and every one of us. That your name may be lifted high. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are in the phase of parenting right now where our kids ask why all the time. Constantly. Why, what, when, who, how. If it's a question, my kids have probably asked it. They ask questions about anything and everything. And I'll be honest, most of the time I have to tell them, I have no idea. I don't know. They're asking questions. And that is good. It is good to ask questions. And as we turn our attention to our passage this evening in Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 18, it's answering the question, how? You see, the last few weeks we've been in Ephesians, we started back in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And David uh, took us through this passage very well, looking at the fact that we who are in Christ have been brought from death to life. By grace, not by works. A famous verse there, verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together, that we, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come we might show the, excellent, the, the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But how? You see how that passage tells us what God has done for us in Christ, but how has God done that? 
Or what about Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 13, where we were last week? Where we saw that, that we who are Gentiles, who were far off, strangers from the, the covenants of promise, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, we had no hope, we were without God, but in Christ we have been brought near. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, how? By the blood of Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? So as we turn our attention to Ephesians 2, 14 to 18 this evening, it answers that question. How is it that God has brought us in Christ from death to life? How is it that God in Christ has brought we who were far off near It is in the blood of Jesus Christ, even as we saw there in verse 13. But verses 14 to 18 really dive into that. How has God done this? He has brought we who are far off near in Christ. And so as we work our way through this, we will see that Jesus Christ is, even as Isaiah proclaimed, In Isaiah 9, 6, he is the prince of peace, the bringer of peace. And he has brought with him peace with man and peace with God. So starting in verse 14, we see peace with man in verses 14 to 15. How is it that God has done this? How is it that he has brought Jew and Gentile together? It is because he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace. He is the embodiment of peace. And this is really the theme of this passage, that idea of peace. It is Jesus Christ, the one who has brought us near. He has brought us peace. And really, if you know your Bible, that is no surprise. As I mentioned, Isaiah 9.6, he is called the Prince of Peace. Even as he came in Luke 2, what is it that the angels proclaim that night over those fields? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. He himself is our peace. But how has he done this? How has he brought us peace? How has he brought Jew and Gentile together? We who are far off, how has he brought us in? Because he himself who is our peace, it is he who has brought both one. Who made both one. Both looks back to verses 11 to 13. The conflict that we saw there. Even highlighted, verse 11, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by those who are the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, you who were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, you had no hope, you were without God, you were outside. And then there's Israel. There's God's people. But how has God reconciled this conflict? He has made both Jew and Gentile one. He has brought them together. But again, how? Have you ever asked someone a question and they keep 
trying to answer your question, but they're not getting to an answer, and you just, yes, but, but how? But how? But how? He himself is our peace. He has made both one. How? Because he has broken down the middle wall of separation. He has broken down the middle wall of separation. What in the world is the middle wall of separation? The middle wall of separation, as we'll see going on into verse 15, is the Mosaic law itself. It was physically pictured by a literal wall in the temple complex that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest where the Jews were able to go. That was a very physical picture, a very physical, literal wall. Gentiles cannot go past this point. There is a difference between Jew and Gentile. That's a physical representation, but that, that, that's not really the wall that we see here. But what is the animosity? What is the difference that, that made that wall be there? That's what this middle wall of separation is. And they answer the question right here in verse 15. How is it that he's broken down the middle wall of separation? Because he abolished in his flesh the enmity. What is that enmity, that wall? It is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. It is the Mosaic law. The holiness code that separated Israel from other nations and therefore created hostility. Even as we just saw in verse 11. You Gentiles, you are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That in and of itself, that, that phrase, you are called the uncircumcision. That's a phrase of derision. They're looking down on you. You are not as good as us. You have not been chosen by God like we have. You don't have the law and the prophets like we do. You don't have a hope and a future like we do. You're less. This law created hostility. But this law has been broken down. It has been removed because he abolished in his flesh the enmity. That middle wall of separation pictured there so vividly in the court of the Gentiles. He abolished it in his flesh. The idea there is literally in his incarnation and in all that he accomplished as he came in the flesh as he suffered and he died in our place. It is his death and it is his resurrection. And in that, he nullified the law. He, he took its power. He fulfilled the law, even as Matthew 5, 17 to 18 says. Its purpose is done. Jesus Christ is the one to whom it looked forward. And he has come, and he has died, and he has risen, and he has fulfilled that law. And so it is gone.
Therefore, with that law gone, with the law losing its power, being torn down, there's, there's no more jealousy from those of us who are outside. There's no more pride from those who are inside. Because there's no more difference. Because we are all condemned and in need of a Savior. It doesn't matter what side of that wall and the temple you are in. You are a sinner condemned for your sin and you need a Savior, whether Jew or Gentile. In fact, that's the whole point of Romans chapters 2 and 3, starting even in chapter 1. We're in Romans chapter 1. The author of Romans, Paul, starts very broadly. And you can almost picture the Jews sitting there reading Romans. And it's talking about those who are condemned, who, who, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's all out there. They can see, but they have chosen. They've closed their eyes. And you can almost picture the Jews saying, like, yes, yes, it is there. That's right. That is true. But then, it comes to verse 17 of chapter 2. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. You think that you are so much better. You're an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's almost like a stab right to the heart. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. For if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code in circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Don't you see that you, Jew, you also need a sinner? Yes, recognize the sin around you in the world, but recognize the sin in your own heart. See that you too need a Savior. That's when you come then to chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all stand in the same place. Sinners condemned, in need of a Savior. And Jesus Christ, in his flesh, died and rose again victorious for your sin, whether Jew or Gentile. 
breaking down the middle wall of separation and bringing us together so as to create, as it says here in Ephesians 2, verse 15, so as to create in himself one new man. One new man. From these two sides that did not get along, Jew and Gentile, to one in Christ. Notice it doesn't say, as to create in himself a strengthened commonwealth of Israel as he's bringing in the Gentiles. It doesn't say that you're added to the commonwealth of Israel. It says that he has created in himself one new man. The new man is the church, as we come to see in Ephesians 2. It is the church. The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. In Christ, God has created in himself one new man from the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and for our sins. So he has brought peace. Peace with man. He has brought together these two sides that seem so irreconcilable. Jew and Gentile brought together in this one new man, the church. With one hope and one savior. But that's not all. He's also brought peace with God. That little phrase there at the beginning of 16, and... So often in Ephesians 2, we focus on the buts, right? But God, who is rich in mercy. Or Ephesians 2.13, but you now in Christ Jesus. But this little and here in verse 16 is just as beautiful. Praise the Lord that Jesus was not only concerned with social issues. He didn't just bring peace between Jews and Gentiles. He brought peace between mankind and God. He dealt with our greatest need that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. To reconcile, to bring together them both, both Jew and Gentile. Again, the whole idea that both Jew and Gentile need to be reconciled. Reconciled to God. Why do we need to be reconciled to God? This takes us back to the very gospel itself, does it not? Because our sin separates us from God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin separates us from God. And we deserve death and hell. We have offended a holy God, brothers and sisters. Do not take that lightly. The holy, eternal, all-powerful God. Our punishment is just. Our condemnation is deserved. 
And as we've seen here, even in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses. There is nothing that we can do to remedy our situation. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God, whether Jew or Gentile. Regardless of what side of the wall and the temple complex you stand on, you cannot reconcile yourself to God. Even if you are the high priest and can walk into the Holy of Holies itself, you cannot reconcile yourself to God. But praise the Lord that on the cross Jesus Christ did. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body. How did he do this? Through the cross. Going back to the same idea we saw in verse 15, in his flesh. In fact, really, we see that it is at this moment, at the cross, as Jesus Christ dies, as he rises again, victorious. What we see here is that these are not two separate events, that God brought us together, and then he reconciled us to God. Really, it's the other way around. We are reconciled to each other because we've been reconciled to God. That is the connector there. The foundation of our reconciliation to one another is first and foremost, most importantly, our reconciliation to God. Through the cross, his death equals our peace with God. And thereby, through that cross, through his death and his resurrection, he has put to death the enmity that was there between Jew and Gentile. The enmity, the hostility that was there between God and man. In his death, he put to death the hostility. Because he's brought us together in Jesus Christ. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace, salvation, hope, peace to you who were afar off, Gentiles. You who just a few verses earlier in verse 12, you who had no hope, who were without God. Jesus Christ came and preached peace. And to those who are near. He preached this message of peace to both Jew and Gentile. And really, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. If you go all the way back to Isaiah 57. Verse 19. I create the fruit of the lips, peace. Peace to him is this, who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. It's a mystery, as we'll see. We couldn't put together the pieces, and yet it's been there all along. That Jesus Christ in himself was creating one new man, the church. And really, verse 18 beautifully sums up this entire passage. For through him, we both have access by one spirit 
to the Father. Through him, we both have access. Those of us who were far off and had no access, and those of us who were near and had the law and the prophets, and we were part of the commonwealth of Israel, both of us needed salvation. Both of us were condemned in our sins. And through him, Jesus Christ, we both, in this one new man in Christ, have access by one spirit that is ours in Christ to the Father. Brothers and sisters, let that thrill your soul. You who were far off have access to the Father in Christ. That is cause for rejoicing. Even as we saw this morning to offer to God the fruit of our lips and sacrifice of praise. So application as we come to the end of these few verses. Number one. Brothers and sisters, we must be unified in the Lord. Seek peace with one another. Look what God has done in Christ he has brought peace. He has brought together Jew and Gentile in this one new man, the church. What right do we to hold grudges against each other? Should not the church be the most unified body on earth? In fact, in just a moment, we're going to come to the communion table together. And brothers and sisters, if there is animosity or frustration or hurt in your heart with anyone who is here in the church, go and deal with it. Rejoice in the peace that is ours in Christ as he has brought us together, even before you come to this table. Secondly, a passage like this causes us to rejoice in our salvation, at least it should. Look what God has done for you in Christ. Understand how precious it is. How sweet it is. How beautiful it is. And then let that fuel you to go and to spread the good news to those who are near and far. May we be those who have beautiful feet, even as Isaiah says. Who take the good news to those who do not know, those who are still far off, but those who in Christ can be brought near.